difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Keith Phipps. And Tasha Robinson. We also have our special guest, Chicago critic and A12 Film Reviews founder, Robert Daniels, back with us for the second part of our pairing. Robert, how has the week you've spent between episodes <laughs> gone? <laughs> it's gone by in a flash. Absolute flash. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> It's incredible how fast, it, it, for us too, very fast between episodes. Uh, on last week's show, we talked about Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger's A Matter of Life and Death, a fantasy romance about a man who cheats death in order to pursue a relationship with a woman he loves. That movie surely had a significant influence on the new Pixar film, Soul, which is also about a man who goes missing from heaven's ledgers because he's anxious to get back to his life on Earth. Only in Soul, there's not much of a life to return to. Or at least there wasn't until the very day that Joe Gardner, voiced by Jamie Foxx, falls down an open manhole. When we first meet Joe, he's dragging his way through another day in the catacombs of the New York City public school system, where he works as a middle school music teacher. Despite the happy news that this long temporary job is now full-time, Joe still clings to his dream of being a jazz pianist, despite the many setbacks and rejections that have led him to a humbler position. Shortly after Joe finally catches his big break and successfully auditions to play alongside famed saxophonist Dorothea Williams, voiced by Angela Bassett, he falls victim to his own blissful absent-mindedness and dies. Rather than ride the escalator to the heavens, however, Joe does everything he can to get back to Earth and make the gig of his dreams. But first he has to pose as a mentor to one of the new souls who needs to pick up aspects of their personality before getting an Earth pass. His student of sorts is 22, voiced by Tina Fey, a jaded soul who has resisted every mentor and every opportunity to get her Earth pass. The two are an odd pair, but when Joe gets their souls back to New York City, with 22 in his old body, and Joe in the body of a therapy cat, they begin to discover what life is all about. Like the pleasures of buy the slice pizza, or of rating and reviewing this podcast. Uh, we'll talk more about them after the break. No, it's the great before. This is where new souls get their personalities, quirks, and interests before they go to Earth. Meet 22. I don't want to go to Earth. Stop fighting this. I don't want to. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, look, I already know everything about Earth, and I don't want anything to do with it. You're missing out on the joys of life, like uh, pizza. I can't smell. We can't, we can't taste either. All that stuff is in your body. No smell, no taste. Or touch. See? Okay, I get it. Wow. It's my life. Is all this living really worth dying for? You're still alive? Can you help me get back? No way! There I am. What are we waiting for? Wait, not me! This weird. What is it? 151,000 souls go into the great beyond every day. And I count every single one of them. That counts. So, Earth. generally speaking, of course, the first question, what did you think of Soul? 
Oh, I dug it. I thought it was a good one. It, it's not to me up to the level of, of Inside Out, which is, I think, one of Pixar's masterpieces and Pete Doctor's uh, best film. But uh, uh, but I've seen it twice now and I enjoyed it both times. Uh, Robert? What do you think? I am decidedly very mixed on soul. Okay. <laughs> I think visually it's stunning. Um, I have no problems with it visually. I think the first thirty minutes is you know really good. I actually even think you know the the end is really good. And I'm almost like going to copy Tasha's argument, but I think everything in the middle is like you know I don't yeah I don't want to say like well problematic yeah probably yeah problematic is probably the word is with the body switch narrative or, or trope. And then the idea of like Tina Fey kind of like get coming very, very close to digital blackfacing. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot in this film that as much as it emotionally resonated with me, it just as equally infuriated me. Okay. Tosh, what about you? I've also seen this movie twice and it played very differently for me uh, the first time and the second time. The first time I was really blown away by the great before by the the creativity of the visuals and the, the intensity of the colors and just all the design choices that went into it. And that whole middle section left me super, super cold. Just like I was loving the grandeur of the film and the real human emotions of that first 30 minutes. And then suddenly we drop into like a giant slapstick routine with a wacky cat and whatnot. But the fact that the movie kind of loops back to humanity at the end, I think, gave it a lot of strength that like I, I was starting to check out a little on goofy comedy routines and then it, it pulled me back in. So watching it the second time, I felt like it, it actually felt like a stronger film to me. Like the, the sense of, of discovery and creativity and innovation wasn't as strong as it was the first time. It, it seemed almost a little more conventional in terms of some of the, the animation choices that it's making. But the humanity of it came through a lot more strongly for me on a second viewing. And the emotions of the last act in particular came through a lot more strongly for me. The first time I watched it, I, immediately rewatched inside out like just instantly mm. wasn't wasn't planning to make that a double feature night but i it was almost a physical compulsion it was so strong and i thought they the two films work really well together as a double feature i agree with keith that inside out is stronger but i see where doctor is going for in soul i think one of the most interesting things about soul and we can dig into this a little bit is that it consciously upends. There are a bunch of things that are tropey that it does that could be very much going for uh, emotional resonance. And Doctor consciously lets go of those things in favor of giving us maybe a more ambivalent ending and a more ambivalent look at life. And I feel like that's the less satisfying choice in a way, but the more daring and, and interesting and ambitious choice. Yeah, I like the way this ends. It's it's weird to compare it to Inside Out. Like this is, you know, Inside Out is about you know science and mind and psychology and and uh, draws on actual neuroscience uh, to talk about you know how you know wh why we think the way we do we do and how our personalities get formed. And that movie that movie just absolutely wrecks me emotionally. And this one's about spirituality and and the big questions and uh and you know what life's really about. And, and this, to me, it's like ah, it's more of a more of a chin scratcher. You know, it 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 is more. I mean, it's not that it doesn't move me, but I have more of an emotional removal in the way I, I approach this movie than I do with, with what, in theory, ought to be the, you know, no pun intended, ought to be the headier of the, of the two. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like this movie. I've had Pete Doctor on the brain because I, I wrote a pretty long piece for The Ringer about his four films and, and the way he makes movies. And I, I kind of compared him to Charlie Kaufman as somebody who has this gift for creating these very elaborate metaphysical 
conceits in order to make very narrow and audacious and specific points about you know the nature of life in humanity because I mean, if you think about you know something like inside out the entire apparatus of that film exists to make the point that sadness is important <laughs> you know really there's an important part of our humanity and, and about and, and something that we should as, certainly as parents accept as, uh, from our, our, our children as much as we in our joy-like ways, want want to make them happy all the time. And here, the key moment for me was when Joe has done all of this work to get back to Earth, get to get back to his body, to finally play the club show of his dreams, to have that club show go every bit as well as he expected it to, to, to have it be this incredible experience, and then to have the show end and to be outside and everybody's going home and he's being, t- he's like, what now? And, and Dorothea says, you know, we'll come back and do it again tomorrow night. And it was such a profound moment for me because it's like, you're, you know, especially as somebody who got his dream job, you know, I mean, I had the dream job to be, to write about film when I was 16 years old and I achieved that dream. But then you think, what is that all there is or something? Mm-hmm. Is there, what, what, what is the actual purpose here? And so it's a very melancholy moment that also leads to, you know, a quite optimistic and cheering revelation about the real reason why you would want to come back to Earth, the real things that you ultimately treasure about living. Uh, and I found that very moving, you know, uh, you know, and I think I wouldn't put it in top tier, I guess, Pixar. It's not my favorite of Doctor's films. It's not my favorite Pixar, but I think it's it's strong. And I think maybe you've identified sort of the weaker elements of the film, which are, which would involve kind of the body switching, you know, the silly, some of the sillier elements of the film. I mean, some, some of which work, some of which don't. But, but I think the fundamental sentiment that's being expressed by this elaborate mechanism of a, of a film is valid and moving one. It's weird too. I mean, right? It just you know, not to be reductive to to one word, but it's a very strange film. It's it's, it's depiction of the afterlife and the the whole uh, you know mystics without borders, and all this stuff. It's fun and peculiar, and it's not afraid of being a fairly eccentric depiction of what lies beyond life as we as we know it. I do really love the ending too. I do love it's unresolved whether he goes on to life as a jazz musician or if he if he sticks with teaching. And it's almost beside the you know as the film would would point out, it's it's almost beside the point. His his spark and 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 his passion aren't aren't the same thing, which is an interesting point. And also, Robert, uh, you've seen this movie at least three times, right? Yeah, three times. Does watching it multiple times like did you have a similar experience where it played differently for you when you knew where some some of these aspects were going? You know, it's weird. So the first time I watched it. I remember being left cold. I remember, you know, that final act just not sitting well with me. I but I couldn't put my finger on it. I just kept kind of kind of sitting around like wondering like what what did I just watch? <laughs> and you know, talk about this more in more detail, but I was reading this book called Film Blackness and the second chapter of it uh the author whose name I'm blanking on talks about uh Chameleon Street, you know, which is a film about this black guy was passing his different uh, professions, you know, from doctor to lawyer to sports star, and it's based on a real person. And that's when I was I was like, oh, I, I think what, the thing that's taking me out of this is that it feels like this is racial passing narrative. And then I rewatched it again, and it was weird because I rewatched it with that in mind. And the things that I didn't like about it, I could pinpoint it quicker. However... Oddly enough, 
you know, emotionally resonated with me more the second time too. You know, that, that last act felt better to me. And then the third time, you know, I think it basically just kind of stayed the same. It's not a film that I absolutely hate. <laughs> it's not, it's not there. It's definitely a film that, you know, I'm mixed on. And, uh, you know, the, I, as I believe this film kind of started out as a Tina Fey vehicle. And then, like, Kemp Powers kind of came in later and kind of put more of the jazz elements in it. And it sometimes has that feel, as though Pete Doctor kind of set up the traffic cones for Kemp Powers to drive around. But, like, you know, he's hitting them because he doesn't, he doesn't know where the traffic cones are, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah, it's, it's sometimes it, it feels like the thing that it's going for with, you know, the body switch narrative and, and the racial passing. It's not something that they're consciously going for. It's something they're kind of unconsciously kind of bumping into. And it's never enough to be malicious or anything like that, but it's enough to give pause and, you know, to, and to wonder, like, oh, well, I wish this hadn't began as a Tina Fey vehicle. I wish it had been the other way around and began as kind of a Jamie Foxx vehicle. And then 22 got wheeled in afterwards, you know, trying to add this, you know, black element to this story that it begins. We talk about this, whether 22 is a white character or not, but, you know, a, as kind of a, you know, a white story. I think it's so much harder than beginning as a black story and and knowing where those pitfalls are and then adding kind of like the white element more to it. Do you end up feeling like this is more 22's story that like the the rescue of 22 kind of uh, subsumes the story about Joe? Oh, yeah, for sure. And really, once they get down to Earth, you know, it really becomes 22's story and it almost becomes where it's not really about Joe getting back to this gig. It's really about 22 finding her purpose. And in that journey to get to that point really puts Joe in this situation where he is kind of, I don't want to say the passive character in the film, but he very much is like, you know, bending over backwards <laughs> to, to, to placate the things that 22 needs in order to feel whole. And, you know, in that, I guess that last act, one of the things I find a little bit grating is Joe becoming almost the villain and having to apologize <laughs> for misunderstanding 22's intentions or even misunderstanding himself and what he wants in life. Yeah, it, it felt out of place for me. And yeah, I, it's maybe Joe's story for the first act, but after that, it's 22's. I find that sometimes, I don't know if this is going to resonate for you or, or this is just a me thing, but like with a movie like Matter of Life and Death, I sometimes find that like either the intellectual elements work for me. Like I, I like the structure of the story and the idea of it, but I think the emotional resonance of it as often doesn't work or the other way around. Like the, the big in, in Matter of Life and Death, it might be more that like the big emotions work fine for me, but the way they're specifically executed, I keep thinking like this could have been done better. This could have been done more clearly. Do you have a sense for whether it's more like an emotional or intellectual response for you with Soul? It's certainly, I think, a more intellectual response. <laughs> I think emotionally it works. I think it's it's a very powerful draw to you know to ask what is our purpose in life is, and you know is purpose enough of a substance to get us through life. And I, yeah, I, I think it, you know it heads into that topic very well in in a way that does resonate at its end. But the way that it gets there, the path that it charts intellectually, for me, it doesn't match 
the, I guess I don't want to say the purity, you know, that <laughs> to be reductive about it, but yeah, kind of like the purity of what it wants the ending to be of like, you know, and, and kind of, I, I even like the purity of even the construction of this world, you're right, that we are all the same, that in the end, we're all just looking to find the right portions of life <laughs> that fulfill us. Yeah, I, I feel like one of the reasons this just doesn't resonate on quite the same level as Inside Out is like Inside Out's climax, its big moment centers on just an act of catharsis and recognition. Like we've all felt sadness. We've all felt uh, grief. We've all felt comfort. And it's just a really well-realized moment. I kind of feel like the the big emotional climax of Soul uh, feels like somebody telling himself, huh, my, my dream job wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And that's just sort of a hard lesson to take, you know? That's, that's kind of <laughs> audacious, though. I love, I I mean, love the audaciousness a, of it. I love the it, daring of it. But again, it, it makes it maybe not land emotionally for me as much. I love the montage that the procedure where he sits down at the piano and basically plays a quarter of a bagel and a, a pizza crust and a Metro card and a lollipop. Just he plays a bunch of detritus. I really thought the movie was going to go in a direction of him realizing that his spark or his passion or his purpose or whatever, whatever you want to call it, the, the real one wasn't playing in a jazz band. It was composing music to express his emotion. I thought it was collecting garbage. <laughs> <laughs> He's gone through all of these experiences and he has this moment of like pure creativity of like putting all of his feelings into his instrument. And it almost goes unremarked on. It, it becomes a, a tool to get him to another place to, to deal with 22's problems. And that's where I started feeling like uh, Robert really kind of has a point there in terms of the narrative shift being a little bit of an issue. Because kind of the, the moment that should be his biggest triumph where he understands himself and who he is and what life is all about just kind of turns into a vehicle to go rescue 22. That was the part of the movie that I wasn't really uh, entirely down with, I think. Yeah, see, I, I, I don't know. I, you know, I always felt it was Joe's story. You know, even when, when it was about trying to find a purpose or a spark for 22, he was essentially reintroducing the world to himself through her. I mean, be, showing her New York, showing her the things about New York that he treasures, you know, was a way of of him making crucial discoveries about him himself and his own motives, his real motives for wanting to come back to Earth more so than it was to 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 send this, you know, quippy little soul on her way. Um, you know, so so to me, it, it, to me, it did feel mostly like Joe's story. I mean, though the Faye aspect of the movie is certainly you know the weakest for me broadly speaking i mean i, I don't i think i think it's almost a much more it's much better as a serious film than as a comedy <laughs> uh it, it almost felt a little bit like ratatouille in a way of just kind of like of of uh one character trying kind of controlling the other uh, uh because they've uh I don't know. Um, there's, I mean, there's a lot of mixing and matching here of of Pixar movies past, but um, it, it came together for me uh, pretty well. I was, this might be nitpicky, but I just never got this story working with Joe's profession, right? I like, oh, this is going to be the gig that changes his life, but like, it's so 
he's been gigging his whole life. He's like a jazz musician. Like he's not like so naive to, th- he shouldn't be, you know, so na- naive to think that like this really low stakes kind of one night kind of gig is like, like, Oh, I'm going to be discovered or something like that. You know? <laughs> and it feels like when he's, when he, they're outside the jazz club and he, you know, he's talking about, Oh, you know, we're just going to play again tomorrow. Like, and he's like <laughs> disappointed by that. I was like, well, yes, you're a musician. You gig. <laughs> like, I, don't, mm. I don't see why this is a surprise. What did you think about Dorothea as a character? I I love Angela Bassett so much. I just like the basically the trope that she's fallen into of uh, just the 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 fierce woman who kind of comes across as the the perpetual uh, stern grandmother. Like she's been doing that for thirty years now, and I've never not loved it. But I'm curious what you thought about its kind of translation into this grand dame of jazz, uh, who's kind of like the the gatekeeper, but also almost the conscience of the piece. Uh, she's 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 got a very load bearing role here. I'm wondering how it landed for you guys. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think she's good, but I think you're right. It, it is a very familiar character, and, and you know, when you cast someone like Angela Bassett, you kind of expect to be a, a few more. Uh, layers there but uh, i mean she's she's good though and of course the the animation does a lot of work too she's a very she's a very fearsome gaze yeah i don't know i didn't really i didn't read too much into her character i mean she's you know grandmother and auntie you know what like she's very much like the other women in joe's life the other stern women like his his mother right i think one of the the other portions of soul that i w- really wish we'd seen is you know we get this hint of this love interest that he might have this for you know this love interest that he's put kind of on the back burner and we we never see her we never get any any more sense other than 22 like you should really pursue that you know <laughs> and i have like the whole time i was like narratively like yes you should really pursue that pete doctor <laughs> <laughs> but it is very much like in keeping with the stuff that angela bassett has been has been doing recently um and i guess like in a sense it is the you know, looking for validation in your peers, you know, probably not the, you know, probably not going to, is it the most fulfilling thing or route to take to have a somewhat healthy, creative and personal life? Well, I, I was just, I mean, I'm curious. I mean, obviously this, this has been sort of touted as the first Pixar with a black protagonist and maybe or a significant black character at all, which uh, I, I was curious about how it functions for you as that is if it if it reveals anything about pixar and its blind spots perhaps or if there are aspects of black life that it understood well or what, what where do you land i'm on not that? trying to think i'm not i'm just hung up on like is it really a first pixar film with a significant black character in it? i can't think of another think. one <laughs> it's interesting because i i think there are scenes that do feel very familiar to me right the barbershop scene was a scene that I, I will say the first time I watched it, it did res- it resonated with me, right? You know, it's such a lived in experience for black men to kind of have this open forum where, you know, you can say or express who you are without, you know, <laughs> at least without judgment for people who don't understand you. Uh, there will be judgment, though. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but it was a, a thing that I felt less great about the second time around watching it, right? That there was 
you know, 22, this character that's kind of like in the middle, you know, pontificating to these, you know, you know, black characters who are, you know, on hand and knee, like listening to her in awe and amazement. Oh, right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that's like the, the major, like, black center point other than you know the warmth that joe's mother shows to him and that very much feels like a black motherly warmth right that that comes through very well i think but yeah i mean the i think the the other portion about this is and i don't know where i saw it i saw it somewhere on twitter but i i really am still waiting for a jazz movie that loves jazz (laughs) 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 it feels like you know the fact that the kind of I guess not you know but the moral of the story is like well you know you being a jazz musician isn't all it's cracked up to be Joe (laughs) (laughs) you know kind of like left a sour taste in my mouth of like no like you know I think that there's a way to 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 kind of explore Joe's love of jazz of like it's not just an obsession but you know it is a portion of his being and it is a way that he is in his life learned to express himself and you know has maybe given him confidence has maybe helped him through tough times and stuff and it's you know for it to be an obsession yes obsessions can run away from you and and, and turn into things that make us wandering in an astral plane as a weird cyclops mm. monster <laughs> but but you know that you know the jazz in itself is considering that it is kind of has always been considered you know the black genre of this is the thing that is other than blues that has charted the black experience in america that i wish it had been handled a little bit more delicately and other than like you know kind of like thrown to the waste in a way I think you at least get a little bit of the love of the music prior to that. I, I, I within the scenes of the actual performance itself, and some of the scenes with him and the kid, you get a little bit of that. I mean, I'm 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 with you though. It's like I, I'm I'm tired of seeing. It's not maligned here, but I'm trying try, tired of seeing jazz so widely maligned when it's when it's uh, great. Backing up to an earlier question, we we got Frozone. Just if Frozone counts as a as a major black character, <laughs> I major though. I mean, yeah. he's well, he's the, all right. He's a non not completely insane. Significance <laughs> character. Been a fr- and he's got some been great a Frozone, lines. You know, spin off like straight to video thing. There has to be. I guess there no, isn't, but there should no. be. There really um, should be a yeah, short. We need a Frozone short. I will say with regard to the to the jazz though that that when he plays and kind of you know and then it, it you know, elevates to the sort of the astral plane, the film does communicate. I think quite well musically and visually and, and, and emotionally the feeling of artistic collaboration and of locking into you know a particular bit of music or or whatever if it whatever it is that you're doing that feels transcendent that that you know and they can almost almost only happen they can through collaborating with other people who who are similarly gifted and can kind of push you to a place you've not been before and so it does capture that feeling quite strongly i think um even if you know ultimately jazz is not the reason (laughs) that he wants to live uh which is maybe a little bit more disappointing as to the barbershop scene i that that is one of those intellectual emotional breaks for me where i like what it feels like that scene the end of that scene is trying to do which is to say that like this this creature that's never lived on earth maybe has a better way of appreciating life on earth than people who are so inured to it so into it like that they they don't see it fresh 
But I don't think the execution of it works at all, because if they'd taken the time to make what 22 is saying somehow misreadable, like if they'd made her lines something that you could take as philosophy or as uh, like a, a bigger picture kind of thing, like if it had been misinterpretable as talking about how wonderful life is, or even if she'd just been generally talking about the wonders of life, that would have made sense. But she's talking very specifically about being like a 10,000-year-old soul that was mentored by Abraham Lincoln. And then you have all these characters standing around saying, oh, wow, man, we've all been there. No, no, you haven't. <laughs> like, there's no world in which somebody would, would take... I'm a 10,000 year old soul who, who ticked off Gandhi as, yeah, you know, that's so relatable. That's, that's a symbol that's really relatable to my personal life too. It just, she sounds like a crazy person and she's acting hugely out of character for, for Joe at that moment. But the script requires everybody to just be like, oh yeah, that, that really makes a lot of sense. And I, I just couldn't, couldn't buy it no matter how much I wanted to. It really does, yeah, on reflection, seem like a really good argument against the movie. And I, I would imagine pretty central to the argument that, that you're making, Robert, in your, your piece and a little bit on here, too, about because I think we can see that scene. And because, you know, we're, we're seeing and hearing Joe in that barber chair, we, of course, can forget it masks the fact that no, that, that that that's not the person who's actually talking. That's not the person that we're actually hearing. That the that the actual voice, uh, the one who's having these this this moment, these revelations, is uh, twenty two, um, and uh, and that puts a way different inflection on the on on the scene uh, that the movie kind of craftily gets away with because you know she's in the body of of Joe. Yeah, I also felt that way with the conversation between Joe and his mother. Right, that argument. And Joe kind of, you know, or I guess 22. It's weird, like, the way they, that scene is, is constructed, right? Where Joe's, like, finally going to give her a piece of her mind, of his mind. But it begins with him mouthing the 22. But then we see 22 as Joe speaking, but we don't see the cat meowing anymore. It's <laughs> just like, is this coming from Joe or is this coming from 22? Because we get the sense that unconsciously that 22 feels exactly what joe is feeling and and has these the baggage of joe right and and i guess in some way can speak to everything that you know he's wanted to speak to but it's still just there's something that logically doesn't work there for me that you know the how that is executed just doesn't doesn't work of like okay well who's talking Yeah, it actually took, took me a moment to remember that it was 22 speaking because it, I mean, I guess the idea there is that, that, that 22 has merged her, you know, I guess you can't even really say her because it's supposed to be indeterminate, indeterminate soul, but merged, uh, their thoughts with, um, with his so thoroughly that, that they understand, uh, him. But, um, you know, I don't know. I think I'm not sure it quite works. I mean, the lead up to the scene, I think, makes it very clear that, Anytime Joe is talking in the body of the cat, people hear yowling from the cat. And we have to, we have to just erase that for that scene to work. <laughs> but yeah I, yeah, I did find myself thinking like, is, is his mom noticing that as he's like delivering this like heartfelt uh, monologue where he, he bears his soul to her for the first time in forever, like the entire time there's this cat standing on his shoulder yowling. Like, <laughs> you, would, you would think she'd be like, this is a very important conversation to have. First, we're putting the tan cat out. 
that, that stuff is comic gold to me every time too when, when you hear that cat like, <laughs> mewling like that uh that like just the, the actual cat behavior uh is uh pretty funny in the movie we're, uh, we're running super long on soul but before we move on i just i do want to kind of shout out the look of this movie which we haven't talked about much at all mm. um it really was the the great before that sold me on it originally mm. the mm. the counselors and their their weird sort of uh picasso hirschfeld kind of look and their strange like barely two-dimensionality and they're they're morphing into different shapes and just they're they're inhumanity they're like friendly but completely alien inhumanity but like the second time around in particular there's just that scene where joe's sitting in the doorway like looking up through the the fall leaves at the with the light falling in his face when it's it's 22 in his body and he's having that realization of just like hey life on earth is cool that's whether the moment works for you or not, it just feels like one of Pixar's loveliest images to date, like in a, in a long series of lovely images. There's just a lot in this film that's really visually beautiful, regardless of any other concerns. It's an, yet another <laughs> – every movie we see is a pandemic movie, and this is a pandemic movie. and Because it just – it gets at all of the communal, you know, urban – experiences that you just miss so badly you know of being able to you know convene with people in a barbershop to be able to have a slice of pizza for god's sakes i mean imagine <laughs> imagine even that and to just be out and about with, with 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 other people and to be out into the world and to see its best face in a lot of ways too i mean this is it's just a very beautiful optimistic uh, you know, understanding of New York uh, that's quite appealingly rendered. Uh, yeah, every movie now is making me miss the world. As <laughs> 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 the longer this goes on, and the deeper we get into winter, and yeah, but oh God, uh, but yes, it, it it is like there. So, so many things like feel like accident. Anything that like celebrates the everyday existence now feels like an accidental pandemic uh, uh, movie. It feels like a movie that's kind of made uh, with, with what we're going through in mind, you know, uh, to taunt us and torture us uh, or whatever. <laughs> For sure. Well, um, uh, well, we have talked quite a bit through Soul. Uh, we're, we want to bring Powell and Pressburger back. So uh, we'll be right back after this break uh, to talk about the connections between Soul and A Matter of Life and Death. Hang on. What are y'all laughing at? So Connie got a little lost in it. That's a good thing. Look, I remember one time my dad took me to this jazz club, and that's the last place I wanted to be. But then I see this guy, and he's playing his chords with force on it. And then with a minor, I was whoa, 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 whoa. Then he has the inner voices, and it's like he's, it's like he's singing. And I swear the next thing I know, it, 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 it's like he off the stage that guy was lost in the music he was in it and he took the rest of us with him that's when i knew i was born to play so now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common and surely pete doctor and company have seen the film a matter of life and death and and one of the things that one of the real one-to-one connections between the two movies is the fact that um there's something wrong with the bureaucracy here. There's a there's a flaw. There's an error in an otherwise perfect system. Someone is missing 
from the ledger. Soul is unaccounted for. Um, so I kind of wanted to get into that a little bit and talk about the idea of afterlife bureaucracy in both of these films. So what do you think, Tasha? I think there are a thousand different things here we could talk about in terms of comparing the afterlife bureaucracy of this these movies. One of the biggest ones being that the bureaucracy in Soul seems to be entirely warm and and welcoming like the the bureaucracy is about making sure that these souls like have their purpose and are their spark or whatever you want to call it and that they're prepared in some way for life on earth it seems all of the the colors are very warm the counselors are very parentally there's just an overall air of uh caring and concern although, although the counselor counselor jerry there a bunch of them are named counselor jerry the counselor jerry voiced by uh, alice braga is kind of interesting in her like arbitrariness about giving people personalities there is just sort of that aspect of um you know you you batch over there you can all be aloof you batch over there you can all be <laughs> incurious uh, like assigning people horrible personality traits in some cases <laughs> on just seeming like a whim uh but overall it seems to be a like a warm and nurturing place i guess Whereas the bureaucracy in Matter of Life and Death just seems so cold and clinical, and they're willing to let themselves be swayed by love eventually. Like, they're willing to actually give love its day in court. But most of what we see of it is very businesslike, very interested in shutting out any form of human emotion. And you don't get the impression that these people are very human or humanoid at all. It's a little unclear whether they're angels or whether they're it, it sort of sounds like they're they're people who passed on but chose to hang out and be bureaucrats. There's a lot that we don't know about the bureaucracy in Matter of Life and Death and none of it is necessarily all that promising about like what actually happens after you die. There's the vague snippet of information about uh, how everybody's being trained for another world, but we don't know anything about what that means. In the same way, we don't really know what happens when people in Seoul go into the giant celestial bug zapper in the sky, which I actually found pretty creepy. People's acquiescence to it, I found in a way even creepier. So, oh, but both of these bureaucracies. Nice. I mean, wait a minute, wait, you didn't, you wouldn't want to go up to a nice, nice bug zapper. See, see a stars. I mean, I we see people. Like, I didn't think losing, it was a bug zapper. It looked, we, it looked, we see it people losing their identities, and then we get a literal bug bug zapper sound effect as they <laughs> zorch into non being. Oh my god! I don't, I don't know what else you would call that. <laughs> But that's as maybe. I get the one. The one other thing I want to point out about these, these bureaucracies is that both of them make reference. That in both cases they lose a soul, and in both cases somebody says, "Well, we can't have lost a soul. That hasn't happened in a really long time," <laughs> which means that both of these bureaucracies have previously lost souls, and uh, that they're both pretty cavalier about the possibility of error. You know, they're they're just dismissive of the idea. Well, we haven't messed up in a long time, so we couldn't possibly have messed up now. But there's no, like, we've never lost a soul. It's just like, no, that hasn't happened in 600 years, so it can't have happened here. And I think it's interesting that there's uh, flaws, like, built into the backstory of both of these systems, as well as kind of flaws in the personality of the people um, running them. I would push back a little bit on your characterization of, of matter, life, and death. I do think it's ultimately the purposes are, are, are benevolent. I think maybe even 
as you point out, maybe a little more obviously benevolent than what happens after death in um, in a soul. Um, but I, I do think that you know they're there's they're formal and they're brusque, but they you know it's ultimately toward pushing everyone toward heaven itself, which is you know despite our hero wanting a reprieve from that, it's not necessarily a bad place to be. Well, let me ask you all this, leaving aside the the people who do manage to escape it, leaving aside that the system in both cases is benevolent enough to give one person back their life, to give a protagonist back their life so the story can continue. Is there anything in either of these systems that you find comforting in a, like, that? that doesn't look like such a bad thing to happen to you after you die kind of way? I mean, the bug zapper seemed pretty good to me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what. I mean, <laughs> that seemed fun. I was okay with a Coca Cola machine in the lobby. <laughs> <laughs> Very, it's a sm- small pleasures for her. It's like as long as there's as long as there's a decent selection of. I guess a now a more updated version would be like one of those machines that where you could just ha- put it wherever you want. You just press a button. Maybe that would be maybe just like a freestyle machine, machine dial up your Right, exactly. Uh, those are those would those are those amaze me as an adult. As a, anyway, um, you know where I used to enjoy those at movie theaters. Yeah, movie theaters. One of those. What now? Oh, <laughs> Yeah, there's no indication in either one of these movies that the theatrical experience is cherished at all, uh, or uh, and I don't, I don't, I don't like that. Um, I guess what's comforting about the afterlife and a matter of life and death is the fact that it's so familiar, right? Where it's you know, soul is so abstract, right? But like, at least there's you know, we see a matter of life and death. It, it feels like oh yeah, that you know I. I was. Yeah, it looks like a museum that they walk into, basically. And it, there's the lobby and everything, and then there's the angel wave, which is so you know the iconography of that, you know, and that being the images that it brings of like you know, oh, you're gonna float off into the sky or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I find that, and, and also the fact that you know people are dead, but you know, some of them traumatically, as we can tell, because it, you know it's set in, in World War II, right? But there are no scars on them, and they're they still look like themselves. You know, they still mm-hmm. look like they are human whereas like in soul they're just like blue blobs <laughs> that you know might have an accent here or there i would say too that i that we're not given in either film a real full portrait of what the afterlife might actually be like we're almost more in a way in a way station in both and, and this is something that also happens in in a film i adore that tasha famously does not uh defending your life the robert brooks film uh which takes place entirely in this kind of pleasant little purgatory where decisions are being made and some people are moved forward and some people are have to go back to where they were that's kind of where we are with both of these films so we don't really get you know a, a sense of what of what the afterlife actually is in in either case you know other than maybe getting a nice set of uh you know walmart wings i guess when you get sent to heaven and uh is in, in um a matter of life and death but I mean, what does it say in both of these films? Is it just that people can't imagine any system that could move a lot of people through, like the necessary volume of people through, that isn't a bureaucracy? Is is that why both of these films shape the afterlife the same way? 
Uh, I think it's funny. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, may, it, may, it may be as simple as that. It may just be a, a funny contrast between uh, uh, what we expect of, of the great beyond uh, or the great before and, you know, how, how one might shape it. Also, maybe it's just sort of a, a nice bit of commentary on, on the limits of the human imagination that, that, that that's as far as we can get. You know, we have to put it in the form of something that we recognize and mm, tolerate. Yeah, it is worth noting that the the afterlife seems to be pretty bureaucracy free, apart from the bean counter counting all the beans. Like there's not really inter- any interference with those people. They're just sort of expected to go up the staircase into the bug zapper, uh, and that all the bureaucracy comes in the before. But it's just it's it is interesting to me that both of these films portray you know what's outside human experience as one of our least beloved human experiences. Hmm. You know, I'm fascinated by by the connection too between soul and inside out in that bureaucratic thing where it's like eventually you you just get down to massive filing systems. <laughs> you know, like it, it, inside out, it's just this huge store of long term memories, some of which are just zapped away forever uh, and th- thrown into uh, oblivion. But it's just it is this unimaginable system you know or it's it's soul where it's this filing system where you're, where you're kind of going through you know a through z for eternity to try to figure out you know who's who's missing that's interesting it's an interesting thought because it because it is it is of course a um it's a big job to try to process the dead i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of dead people <laughs> there's a lot of dead people coming through all the time a lot of dead people that have been processed uh you have to have a good system in place um and uh and I guess that's uh, uh, it seemed like both of the, the systems here were pretty well worked out. I mean, I think it is interesting that both of these films, while the bureaucracy itself may not show a whole lot of human imagination, the outside the life experience is where both films kind of get their their meat and potatoes in terms of ambitious cinematography, ambitious imagery. You know, Powell's idea of a heaven that's also a spiral galaxy that's also a place where there's a floor full of holes that you can just kind of like look down on the world um that's just a whole bunch of different things at once depending on what it needs to be uh, at any given time i think is pretty interesting and the sort of crash for the future in soul I, i think is is equally interesting like these are both people trying to very much imagine what comes outside mortal life and what something much bigger and cleaner would look like. And I think the visuals just become very interesting and important in both of these movies. Well, what are the other connections between these two films is they is they can get right down to the essence, which is which is what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of being alive? Because we have these two movies with protagonists who have broken the rules deliberately and and go to great lengths to you know reject their fate and you know defy you know millennia of afterlife law to return to be mortal and to carry on with their lives and so that 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 essentially that that's a that's another kind of key connection between these two movies no yeah i'm not even sure i mean if like if so, it's weird because like Soul is trying to answer what Joe's purpose is, what you know, and like the way they use his purpose and Spark, she was very ambiguous. It's never really like defined. We just kind of find out what it's not. We never find out what it is, right? And so like Soul is, I think, grappling with that. You know, the 
the meaning of life, right? Maybe a little bit differently, where, where like, 22 is incredulous, right, about about Joe wanting to go back to his crappy life <laughs> that he hates, like, but, but it's still, like, you know, needs, you know, wants to hold on to, you know, whereas, like, I feel in about our life and death, right, for, like, say, Marta's character, um, where he very much empathizes, right? He has lived, you know, he has had a life and, and, and can see why, um, uh, Niven's character would want to go back to, to his life, right? He, he knows, oh, there's love there. And I feel like it's so much, you know, quantifiable in, in, in a matter of life and death as, as opposed to soul. I think they're both also about the ultimately about how the meaning of life is not in the sort of these grandiose beliefs or these big systems or national identity or in soul in fulfilling your dreams. I, I think they're in much smaller things. Like it's kind of like you're, you're, you've been looking in the wrong places and, and, and you'll find meaning at some place, um, much, much closer to you, uh, or something much more, uh, every day. If like, falling in love you know a lot of people do it but maybe it's maybe it's ultimately the best thing there is uh and and with the uh, soul that's sort of the elements of the humble pleasures of everyday life uh which you know we talked about all all missing very much uh right now um mm-hmm. you know that's 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 where it's at i mean i th- i really do like the elements of soul that are about him achieving his dreams and and being left empty uh because i mean that's really uh, you know in terms of achieving dreams i, I don't know that i've had a, a grand dream that had to come true but you know you 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 think you think to yourself if i can just get this accomplishment then you know i'll i'll, I'll feel great you know i'll i've gotten there and he, you never get there <laughs> you know i remember um seeing jaime and gilbert hernandez the uh the creators of love and rockets speak once and you know you both on the, any short list of the greatest cartoonists the most influential cartoonists in the last few years and um gilbert was reflecting on being in a punk band and how they never had a great drummer green day who there was a contemporaries more or less uh they had a great drummer so this is someone who's like at the top of his field and he's just reminiscing about like, man if it just had a drummer <laughs> i could have been a great you know could have been the, i could have been as big as green day it's like yeah you just you just don't get there and you don't see that they're expressed in films uh which are very much you know a lot of Plots are driven about, you know, hero achieves goal, roll credits, and that's just a different kind of ending. And I'm not sure it totally uh, sticks it all the way, but but it's um, but it's it's a really interesting. It's a bold choice. Yeah, I feel like something distinctive between these two movies here is the degree to which a matter of life and death kind of says, well, we're in love right now, and therefore, and that's it. Like that's that's all we need. That's more powerful than life and death itself. It's more powerful than any bureaucracy. But it's literally been less than 24 hours for them. Like, I wonder what that relationship looks like in a week. I wonder what that relationship looks like in a year. Uh, I wonder if that relationship is still there in a year. We we know that Peter's going to survive longer than that, unless uh, the Heaven's Bureaucracy was getting really, really huffy over a six-month extension. <laughs> but I, I feel like what Soul is doing is not necessarily saying, hey, a musical career isn't fulfilling, or hey, uh, creating isn't fulfilling, or hey, getting your dreams isn't fulfilling. What I What I feel like it's saying, which strikes me as – the kind of message that the movies hate, uh, but the the kind of message that we all need to hear a little more often, is that life is about 
living, like, like every day, getting up and doing the work, you know, getting, doing the work of getting out of bed and uh, brushing your teeth and making food. And whether you're, you're doing work, you got to scrub the toilet today, like whatever it is, it just goes on and you can meet your soulmate and fall in love, but you still have to do the daily work. You can get the job you've always wanted, but you still have to do the, the daily work. You can meet the celebrity that you think uh, is going to be the uh, apotheosis of your dreams if you finally meet them or accomplish whatever goal, get your first novel published, cliff dive in Borneo, like whatever it is. And then you still have to do the work. And I feel like soul acknowledging that movies just end with a happily ever after uh, a lot of the time. And the assumption is, and the story does not continue and you don't have to deal with the messiness of life. So what soul is saying is, and then you got to get up and do it again. And it's just not a satisfying conclusion, but it's such a real conclusion. It's such an honest conclusion. And maybe honesty isn't the most like neatly narrative satisfying thing there is in the world. But I I really kind of love that we have a movie that says it get to to pete doctor's career too i mean that that the the message of sorts in um soul is you know quite similar to to up uh and that in that up is about a character or characters who you know carl and ellie who want to go on this adventure to paradise falls in in south america and and of course in that very heartbreaking montage that opens the film they cannot they never make it because they, there's a lot of setbacks. Like any, they, they can't have children. It's a very sad thing. And uh, and of course, then the rest of the film, you know, is about this this quite whimsical I- I- adventure where Carl and this stowaway uh, boy kind of do you know fly up in this balloon and do make it to Paradise Falls. And it takes getting to Paradise Falls to realize that that was not really the point, <laughs> you know, in, in that there were other things uh, that were more important about life and other things that were more meaningful about, you know, Carl's relationship with Ellie. And that was something that, that Ellie had understood that Carl needed to go on this adventure himself to understand. And so I think that's kind of a thing, kind of just a, a, a doctor philosophy that's being kind of played out in both, you know, up and then, and now, this movie that the meaning of life is life it's not it's not a goal that you achieve and that if you attach too much to achieving that to achieving a goal that you're liable to find uh that to be uh, you know an an empty and disappointing you know experience uh you know what one other connection is, is these are both films uh rooted in a particular time and place um, you know, this is we get uh, Southern England in in uh, matter of life and death, but I think it's kind of a stand-in for England in general. And certainly, gets a, the best some of the most beautiful parts of England in this film, from the beaches and the and the fields. But also, you get the British uh, British character, and I, I think we talked touched on it before. It's kind of like the most glowing stereotype of, 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 of the British character. You know, it's just sort of the stiff upper lip and the, and the ironic humor, but also the, the strong 
uh, values and ultimately um, good nature. You know, though certainly in the trial sequence, the um, ways of that nature has uh, the goodness of that nature is certainly put on trial in some ways. And uh, in in uh, in Seoul, we get. New York culture and, you know, as, as a vibrant, uh, you know, multicultural place filled with, with, um, you know, music and food and, uh, bustle and, you know, people who have, who have, um, some conflicts aside have le- learned to live with one another. Um, you know, you, you bump into someone in the subway and they yell at you, but, you know, the, the system basically works. So I, I think they're in similar in some ways. I think they're both sort of like, love letters to those, these, these places that kind of acknowledge some of their flaws. Uh, do, does everyone else feel the same way? Um, I mean, I think, you know, a matter of life and death. I What I find interesting is the, the trial sequence where we, we get these, you know, we, we've had this, this entire film where, you know, it's like the picturesque kind of, you know, Britain. But like one of, one of the, the things that gets brought against Britain is, is, you know, its imperialistic history as being like one of the, the you know, lack of a better term, the grimer <laughs> portions of, you know, of being British, right? Of like, well, you've taken advantage of all these people, you know, and <laughs> that's where you, you know, you, you partly get your, your cheeriness from on the backs of others. And, you know, the, with regards to New York, it being just this melting pot of people being crap to you, but that's like, okay, because like, it's, character building (laughs) Um, but i find that you know the things that a matter of life and death bringing up like especially with regards to imperialism especially with regards to britain's place on the world stage during world war ii and how it's still somewhat elevated you know before the, the upstart americans kind of like take over and you know admonish britain for its past you know only to as we know kind of repeat those same mistakes in the future to be, you know, quite, you know, subversive. That something I wasn't expecting to, to confront in that film. I can't think of an American studio film from that era that would was quite as frank. If, you know, if even if that motive, motive is fleeting, it's still pretty cutting. I can't think of an American film that be uh, that's quite as frank about about the flaws um, of uh, of our country from that from that period. At the same time, like it's that that explication of the jury is so cutting and so emotional and in a way so daring and unusual but the whole time it was going on i was thinking but what what's the relevance here like we're we're trying to set up a court case that amounts to nobody could love a brit <laughs> like that you two can't be in love and it just feels so distanced from the emotional core of the movie, which is about these two people and not about a national referendum. The All of the national referendum stuff in A Matter of Life and Death, I, I thought was very odd. Well, I think some of that comes from um – as we t- as we touched on before, mm-hmm. sort of the tensions between the United States and, and Britain at the time too, and a place that was suddenly uh, flooded with all these uh, people who uh, joined the war a little bit later than everybody else, and then kind of like uh, filled up the country and were romancing the women and so on and so forth. So you know that may not read as immediate uh, to us now. I, I wouldn't call it dated though, um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think I, I think a little cultural context uh, kind of helps helps uh, explain that a little bit better. Oh sure, it's just it, it's as if Soul like took a, a twenty minute uh, downtime to to get away from Joe and twenty two and their relationship uh, to talk about like Korean Japanese relationships in the nineteen sure. forties, like at, at <laughs> length. It's just it it feels like it's a it's a history lesson and. 
an explication of like a, a bunch of different aspects of culture. But again, like what's the relevance to the story you're telling? Oh yeah. And like has zero re- relevance other than you shouldn't fall in love with Brits, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I, I, um, it, it definitely is something that, that feels very, I don't know what, what say dated, but apart from what we're used to of the, post like special relationship you know between the two countries it's that's almost to seem like it's always exist, existed but it's really very much a recent phenomenon but it has been around long enough during our lifetimes that it feels sort of out of the way to, to explicate and go through the fissures that are happening between these two countries and once again you know, the u.s coming in late after years of uk being bombed to death literally you know and begging please help us and us being like oh well we'll see (laughs) (laughs) it also just i guess it feels a little weird as a a plot point because you know in the modern world we're used to thinking of britain as one of our closest allies and the people who are probably worldwide culturally closest to us as we've become, you know, at least slightly more awake and aware of other countries and religions and traditions and uh, just people in general. The idea that, uh, you know, two English speaking white people would could not possibly be able to get along, uh, <laughs> as opposed to the, the hundred thousand variants on Romeo and Juliet that we've had of people from like actually opposing countries like uh, for our factions or races or belief systems or or what have you like whatever barriers that we find between people and and have found in movies finding finding a barrier between uh, brits and americans just strikes me as uh, it feels a little odd in this day and age i'm also reminded of the central conflict of the crown the abdication right where it is the English king who gets with the American woman and, uh, you know, the British society is very incredulous on their love. Like, how can these two people possibly love each other? <laughs> how, how can how can our great king be into this cloying American woman? <laughs> um, I, I wonder if, if there's some, you know, if there's some residue of that on, on that relationship. Hmm. Though, I, though I would say I think that the union, I guess, of uh, Peter and June is is forged here with optimism about the future of this relationship. No, I mean this is. Uh, I would positive. say only someone with uh, no romantic uh, feeling in their soul whatsoever could not be moved by this relationship. What do you think, Tasha? <laughs> uh, I think uh, I've already confessed to being moved by this relationship, and as with <laughs> so okay. many other things. Uh, liking something slightly less than you do and in a slightly different way than you do has turned me into a, uh, a human monster. Um, but, you know, I think that, uh, I think that there are different ways to appreciate things. I think that both of these films have just inherently really interesting, big, ambitious ideas and slightly flawed executions. And it's much as with Defending Your Life, which I'll go three around the mulberry bush with Scott on that one any day. No, it's so great. You have a, a a brilliant idea, and you can see ways that it could be better. It's it's hard to not think about the ways it could be better. Oh God! Oh <laughs> no! Yeah, we can't do it. We can't do this. We can't do. We can't do this. And we're not going to do this because I'm hosting the show. We're actually we're going to move past connections <laughs> and say that uh, a matter of life and death is on Criterion DVD and Blu-ray. 
um, which is what Defending Your Life will be in <laughs> March, by the way. Um, it's not streaming anywhere officially, uh, but it's also up in a half-decent form on YouTube. You know, we can't necessarily recommend you watch films that way, but, you know, it's there. Uh, Soul is currently a Disney Plus exclusive. Uh, we'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we recommend, especially in this age of widely available digital media that we all need to catch up on. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? We should really cut the lately part out of these recommendations because sometimes we reach back further into things that just seem really appropriate. So thematically, uh, I would love to spend this time uh, going on and on about uh, Corita's movie Afterlife and how much I love it. It's uh, really literally one of my all-time favorite movies. And it's another movie about afterlife bureaucracy and about the process of what happens after you die. It would just be such a great triple feature with these movies. Unfortunately, it's basically unavailable. Um, you can buy uh, DVD or, or Blu-ray uh, copies of it um, a little on the pricey side. I'm not even sure it's in print. They're just, you know, available. But it doesn't seem to be streaming anywhere, which is a real shame because it's lovely and because there's a movie coming out theoretically in 2021 that's a perfect bookend for it. And I, I absolutely wanted to do these as a double. I don't know why Corita's movies are so hard to find in the US. Mm -hmm. And I would like that to change. Since I cannot in good conscience tell people you need to drop everything and go see this movie that you can only see by buying it on physical media, I'll bring up something else that's uh, – an afterlife story, probably the most unconventional of the many afterlife movies I've seen. Uh, it's called Risk Cutters, a Love Story, and it's from 2006. It, I'm not going to claim that it's a great movie. It's a distinctly weird movie. Um, it's based on uh, Edgar Caret's writing. Um, he's a short story writer primarily that's, uh, it just produces some really amazing, offbeat, uh, unusual kind of stuff. And in this particular case, it's a sort of love story about the world that people go to when they commit suicide. So it's, it's a dark sort of comedy romance kind of story, um, about a couple stuck in this, again, kind of afterlife way station y sort of place that they describe as exactly like the living world, except everything is crappier. It's got a pretty incredible cast. Uh, Will Arnett, uh, Nick Offerman, Amy Simetz, uh, Zero Sky, uh, Shea Wiggum. Patrick Fugit, uh, just all sorts of people, <laughs> Leslie Bibb. But if you're watching it, you're probably watching it in part for Tom Waits, who's just uh, the the biggest hoot in this uh, in this film. It is one of those movies that you end up kind of loving, not because it's the best story that you've ever seen, but because it's a story you're not gonna you've never seen before. You're not gonna see anything else like it. And I I didn't I wasn't head over heels for it when it came out. I was uh, just like this is just a very strange offbeat uh, kind of uh, the 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 kind of indie that you get out of some very weird people following their very weird muse. 
but the movie has just stuck with me over the years. Like the, it's, it's offbeat humor and it's outsized performances and it's just really distinctiveness in a, in a lot of different ways. And it's unlike uh, Afterlife, very widely available, um, including on all the major streaming services, including uh, Amazon Prime Video. It's, it's free if you've already got that service. So, if you're in the mood for something weird and uh, a little on the dark side and you, you don't mind a film that – I'm not going to say it's a, a downer ending per se, but it's certainly a downer premise. Uh, Risk Cutter's a love story. It's it's going to be one of the weirder films you watch uh, about life and death and the meaning of life. Has anyone ever, ever – has anyone seen that one besides Tasha? <clears throat> I haven't. Yeah, me, me neither. So, uh, so gosh, I guess we need to to catch up. I I had heard, you know, that, that did seem to kind of have uh, a kind of instant cult appeal. Uh, that movie, or at least a, a hope a hoped for cult appeal. Yeah, uh, I mean, anyway, if nothing else, it's just got kind of that um, the cachet of a movie that talks about things that movies generally don't talk about. You know, suicide is a horrible, depressing topic, and movies tend to either like milk it for for big, deep drama or not acknowledge it at all. So a movie that takes it to takes a lighter tone with it without being like dismissive or flippant or thinking that it's edgy to bring up is just a, an interesting thing. But speaking of movies that we all need to get caught up on, uh, Robert, what's your recommendation? My recommendation is the other Kemp Powers written film, One Night in Miami, which is uh, Regina King's feature directorial debut. It happens literally over the course of one night in a Miami hotel room. It's based on a loosely based on a on a on a real event, though, you know, the particulars are made up a little bit, particularly the uh the conversations that they have, but it's probably between four of the biggest black sixties cultural icons, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Sam Cook, and Jim Brown. And they meet over a course of one night in a, in a hotel room and they talk about black liberation and how the process of getting there. And they talk about each person's personal failings and how, you know, they haven't quite maybe lived up to their particular talents or their particular drive or purpose. However, you know, it sounds like a pretty dour film, but it's actually, you know, the script is incredibly snappy. It's very, very, very funny. Aldous Hodge stars is is in it as Jim Brown. He has some of the best one-liners <laughs> probably of his career. Um, I rewatched it last night. There are parts of it. it every joke that's in there held up on the second watch. Um, and every, like, you know, punch the air moment also held up. Uh, Kingsley Benadir is in it, too. So is uh, Eli Goree and... Um, Leslie Odom Jr., um, Leslie Odom Jr., and or I should say Eli Gorey and, and uh, Kingsley Ben-Adir have the, the toughest task. The, the latter is, is playing uh, Malcolm X, the former is playing Muhammad Ali, two people who've already had very big cinematic adaptions done to them. But, um, however, I, I do think the way that they're able to carve out those characters are incredibly unique and quite different from the other portrayals that, that we're kind of used to seeing. It's a strongly acted ensemble. It's a, it's a you know well decorated period piece, and yeah, it's just it's overall just it's a fun time. <laughs> it's a film that has a, a a lot of rewatch value. It's coming on Amazon Prime January fifteenth, um, and yeah, highly 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 recommend it. 
I just got my screener for that like two days ago. I, I don't know Me why too. it came so late, uh, but yeah. I'm really looking forward to it. The the early reviews for it. I don't remember what festival that that was out of, but the early reviews for it were really over the moon. It was at uh, it, uh, Toronto, debuted it? at Venice and then mm-hmm. it was at okay. Toronto. But uh, it's played just about I think it's played just about every place that has a festival. <laughs> <laughs> And I just, Regina King, I'm just so excited for her career and uh, all the places it seems to be going. What's what's she like as a stylist? Like, what stood out to you about the direction? So I think the best part of the direction is probably her, the, the performances she's able to get from the actors. I think to open, and I hate, you know, being like saying TV direction, because we, as we already know, the bound, you know, the barriers between those is, is getting looser and looser and looser. But I think compositionally to, to open, it's a little too repetitive, a little too, you know, one shot cut, one shot cut, this person speaks, one shot cut, you know. And I don't think it opens up enough until maybe about 30 minutes in when, or not even 30 minutes in, maybe 25 minutes or 20 minutes in when all four of the actors are together because it kind of begins where she's charting where each character is in their respective life and then they come together. And I don't think it's th- until then when she has four people and she's kind of forced to do, you know, more interesting compositions, you know, more like two shot, four shot, three shot, that sh- the, the, it doesn't feel, because it's, I should note that it is adapted from Kent Powers' play of the same name, right? So it feels, and it's early going, feels kind of stagey and a little bit too inert visually. But I, I think it very much opens up later on. And I think stylistically, you know, it's become much more glossier and uh, just much more vibrant, too. I think her her direction really comes alive, you know, but after that first act. Uh, so, Keith, uh, how about you? So I, I've got another I mean, I mentioned before, I'm, I'm kind of fond of, of, of such films, uh, you know, other other su- supernatural themed uh, uh, comedies uh, f- from this era and, and other eras, too. But uh, you know, beyond a matter of life and death, well, a film you might, in- if you enjoy it, you might also enjoy a similar themed film in some ways called Here Comes Mr. Jordan, uh, which wa- which stars Robert Montgomery as a boxer who dies in a plane accident, uh, but is, is determined to be taken to too soon uh so he has to uh return to life in somebody else's body uh the twist here being that it's somebody who has just been uh murdered by his wife and uh one of his work uh, one of the people who works for him so it's it's a it's a fun film it's got a nice uh romance at the center of it claude rains plays the eponymous uh mr jordan who is sort of the the heavenly supervisor um, you know, it's, it's, uh, very enjoyable, you know, perhaps not as concerned with the big questions as a matter of life and death, but, but, uh, quite, quite fun in its way. It was, it's been remade several times, um, most famously as Heaven Can Wait, starring, uh, Warren Beatty, and then again as Down Earth, starring Chris Rock. I actually, ha- I love the Warren Beatty one. I haven't seen the Chris Rock one. Has anyone seen, uh, Down Earth, the Chris, the Chris Rock? <laughs> Uh, f- version I, of this? I have. It's it's not it's not so great. I've blotted yeah, okay, it from my okay. memory. I've seen it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, not so great. It's it's a it's it's a venerable premise in other in other hands, I guess. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, certainly in, in this one, uh, so it's it's definitely worth your time. That's also not streaming on the Criterion Channel, although there's a Criterion edition of it. But it is uh, rentable on other platforms. Scott, how about you? Uh, yeah. So I had occasion. I mean, I, I I've talked before about how I think. 2020 was a really good year for documentaries. Uh, I saw a lot of really, 
really fine documentaries that fi- that did find their way onto streaming services. And uh, one of those that I don't think got talked about enough was the Norwegian documentary, The Painter and the Thief. Um, this is a film about the relationship between a Czech artist named Barbara Kislova and uh, a man named Carl Bertil Nordland, who is uh, one of two crooks who were who was caught stealing uh, two of her paintings from an Oslo art gallery in 2015. During the trial, uh, this almost sounds like a Seinfeld <laughs> premise or something. The the artist Kislova persuaded uh, Nordland to sit for a portrait, and uh, and there. Uh, collaboration is captured in the movie and then and then his reaction to seeing what she has done how she has rendered him is just one of the most galvanizing moments i've seen in the movies this year his his reaction to it is so powerful because here here is somebody who is a you know a ne'er-do-well a career criminal who is being seen in a very interesting and profound and transformative light but the story doesn't really end there Uh, they have a relationship that ends up being quite complicated and troubled and has almost and and plays to both of their tendencies toward codependency towards self-destructiveness so there's a whole lot of twists and turns involved too all captured on camera it's a very unusual movie it's very unexpected and uh there's a lot there psychologically to unpack um it's on hulu for, for if you have that service, so you can find it, you can rent it uh, elsewhere. Uh, but I, I quite recommend it. Uh, it's called The Painter and the Thief. Scott, there aren't many people I could ask this, but when I read the description of that movie, my first thought was that it, it felt like a different country's take on Kiarostami's close-up, which is also about oh. identity theft and art and uh, yeah. like exploring the oh, the yeah, psyche of mighty. the person who would no no I how did I miss that yeah no, that... so so was it was it similar in your eyes uh, yes yes no that was that's a really good point my God I I uh, uh, yeah no that that's that's I think that's I think that's correct I think that those that if we were to do if we we've already done close up what did we do close up with well we didn't I, do close up we did uh, moment of innocence. No, we did close up on the show. Did we, we? did close up on the show. Movinus was was a was a movie of the week. Was a movie of the week. And, uh, more more evidence of Keith's shameless uh, SEO. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, as as editor in chief, it's like let's devote a whole week to <laughs> Mosin Malbaf's a moment of innocence in our juggernaut of a film site. Uh, but no, what did we compare close up with on this show though? Do you do you remember? I There's have none. never actually seen the movie, so if we okay. did it, I wasn't here for it. Yeah, I think you might not have been, but we um, have listeners who are who, are, who know well, this. We'll sh- figure it out. Screaming at their microphones right now. I know, yes. I know. Yeah, of course they remember everything. Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, that's a good good comparison. It, it does have a little. I wish it almost had more of a feeling of a Kiarostami film, where where because I think you do kind of question the filmmaker's role here in a way that uh, Kiarostami would have just revealed all of that. He would have revealed his presence would not have tried to kind of hide it too much. Uh, the writer, we, we paired it with the writer. Huh. Oh, right. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah which, makes, which makes sense. Yeah, it did. It did. I did. Yeah. That was, that was, uh, that was a good one. Who could forget? <laughs> Who could forget that? episode? <laughs> That's it for this edition of the next picture show. Our next pairing will come out January 19th and 26th. Keith, what do we have on tap? On our next episode of the next picture show, we'll be watching movies featuring men who drink 
a lot. Maybe too much, or maybe just the right amount. It's hard to tell, especially through a haze of alcohol. First up, we'll be revisiting Alexander Payne's 2004 comedy Sideways, in which Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church play characters taking a tour of California wine country, a journey involving a little bit of reflection and a lot of poor decisions. Then we'll talk about Another Round, the latest film from Danish director Thomas Vitterberg. Mads Mikkelsen stars as one of four school teachers who decide the cure for middle-aged doldrums might lie in maintaining a steady buzz throughout the day. What could possibly go wrong? Join us as we find out. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of A Matter of Life and Death, Soul, or anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha Robinson. I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Keith? Uh, I'm a freelance writer. You can find me on Twitter at KFIPS3000. I write for places like uh, uh, Vulture, The Ringer, uh, Polygon sometimes, um, you know, a bunch of other places too, uh, GQ, whatever, if, 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 if you know. Uh, I'll write for you if you want me to write for you. Um, and uh, yeah, again, KFIPS three thousand. I, I post most of my links uh, links to my writing there. No, f- no Scott? fee is too no fee is too big, right? <laughs> no fee is too. Some fees are too small. That's true. Uh, <laughs> but my definition of small is pr- pretty generous. Oh, uh, Robert, how about you? Uh, yes, yeah, so you can find me at uh, at eight one two film reviews on Twitter. Um, I freelance regularly for Polygon, uh, which uh, should have a piece on Soul coming out somewhat soonish. Um, and let's see in the future, uh, very near future, I'll be covering uh, Sundance. The uh, I think I'm covering the World Doc competition for for um, mm. for RogerEbert.com for Sundance. Yeah, there was a, I think it was like uh, Robert Redford. It was like. If you want to see a good movie at Sundance, just go see documentaries. <laughs> so you're probably in a pretty good shape. And uh, as for myself, um, um, I'm on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. And uh, you can find my work in the New York Times. Uh, you, you can find it in The Ringer, uh, Guardian, uh, Vulture, and other fine publications. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. Our producer and co-host... Uh, Genevieve Kosky. You can find her at Genevieve Kosky on Twitter. She is the deputy TV editor for Vulture. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Um, uh, thank you, Robert, for being with us. I did not uh, get a chance to say that. Um, that was great. Uh, we love having special guests, and and uh, you are no exception. We're not going to. Uh, we love you like we have loved our other special guests. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Mm-hmm.